Well, good morning, everybody. Who else is sore from shoveling yesterday? Anybody? Yep. Well, we live here, so we know it's not done yet, but we can still be disappointed. Would you stand with us as we begin worship this morning? Turn 
Thank you for joining us this morning, whether you're here or online, if you're in person. Well done for making it through all that snow. Good job. Um, my name is Ian. I'm the youth and family pastor here, and we are excited for you to be with us. If you are new or visiting, we would love to connect with you. We have a connect card in the seat in front of you. You can fill that out and put it in the box in the back. Also, if you have prayer requests or really anything you want to communicate to the church office, you can fill that out. Um, the boxes in the back are also where tithes and offerings can go. A couple of announcements. Um, there are small group sign-ups uh, on the clipboards in the narthex. They're over on the wall by the pictures. Um, there are three sign-ups. There are weekday times, there are weekday evenings, and there is Sunday morning. Um, there is also, I want, Pastor Tim wanted me to mention, a Monday evening group that has child care available. So if you need child care and you can do Monday evenings, please sign up for the week, uh, weekday evening time. Um, we're excited for after Easter, we are starting a new small group thing through, um, it's called Practicing the Way. It's focused on the Sabbath. If you haven't heard about it, come talk to me, talk to the church office. It's going to be great. Uh, we'd love for you to join us. We're trying to get the whole church to do it. Um, and with that being said, youth is even going to be doing a pared down version of the Sabbath study. So we'd love for you to join us as we do that. This week it is Holy Week, right? So today is Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday, sorry. On Friday, April 7th, we are having a good Friday service at 6.30 p.m. So we would love for you to join us and we will also have a, our normal Sunday morning um, Easter service next week. With that, there is a Easter brunch on Sunday, April 9th, after our worship service. If you have not received an email to RSVP and would like to make a reservation, please call the church office this week. We've already had a couple of people call. Um, it's going to be a great brunch. Uh, the Kirby's are making it, so thank you, Kirby's. It's going to be good, so um, make sure that you sign up if you haven't already. This morning, is we will also have Sunday school, as we normally do. Um, so in here, the J.D. Greer book study that um, East Central Christianity will be in here. All the children's ones will be downstairs. So if you would join us um, for that after coffee and that kind of thing, that would be great. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, we thank you for bringing us all to this place, Lord, safely. We think of all the, the snow and, and um, just the majesty of you that is seen in your creation, Lord. It's, I mean, you don't realize how powerful you are until you have to shovel your driveway for the second time in the middle of April. But we thank you for that. We pray, um, we pray for this nation. This week was, was rough for a lot of different reasons for a lot of different people in a lot of different places. We think of tornadoes and school shootings and, and all the things that are happening in this world. And we are reminded that, that this world is fallen, Lord. And it needs you. And not just a little bit. It needs you for everything, Lord. We ask that you would comfort the families in Nashville as they they deal with the fallout of this, this school shooting. We pray that you would make yourself obvious to them. Help them to see that 
even though everything seems like it's spinning out of control, you are present and you are in control because you are God, Lord. We pray for uh, the, the people in the south that are dealing with all these tornadoes and having to rebuild and I just, Lord, make yourself obvious to them. Help uh, the crisis groups that are going down there to help them. Um, Give them strength and wisdom and peace as they're figuring that out. Lord, as we, as we look into this world and we see this darkness, help us to remember who you are, Lord. That you are the God 2,000 years ago sent your son to die on a cross for us and to save this world. I would ask that you would help us to remember that as we look forward to Easter. Help us to not get distracted by the candy and the Easter bunny and all the other things that are going on this time of year. But remember who you are, what you did, and what you've done for us. Lord, help our worship to be sincere. Help, help us to um, not put on a mask or a face, but rather just worship you honestly and with a joyful and full heart, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we continue to sing this morning? In Second Corinthians 5.21, says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's essentially the first line of the song we're going to sing next. So if you guys would just join me in, in thinking about what, what Christ has done for us as we continue in song.
Jesus Messiah. Seems to hide his 
Jesus, we praise you for who you are, Lord. Thank you for your precious blood that was shed for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the early 90s, DreamWorks was working on a number of projects. One of the main ones they were working on was a movie adaptation of the life of Moses called Prince of Egypt. Great movie, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's pretty good. It also has a soundtrack that will get stuck in your head for days on end, so you guys should check that out. As they were working on Prince of Egypt, they were also started working on a movie called Shrek. However, they did not have high hopes for Shrek and moved it off of their main campus to a separate facility that was just designing Shrek. Animators and writers who did not work well with others in other projects were sent to Shrek as a kind of disciplinary action. So Shrek became the detention for DreamWorks. If you didn't do well, underperformed, whatever it was, you were Shreked, was the term they used. But in 2001, when the film came out, it not only did well, but won the first ever Oscar for Best Animated Film. On top of that, they also beat out Finding Nemo for making the most money on an animated film franchise. It's like I can't remember the exact number, it's like $489 billion or something like that. Shrek seemed like it was going to crash and burn, but instead this film that was pretty much made to make fun of Disney succeeded and surpassed all expectations. And for some of these writers and designers, it was a dark time in their lives, I'm sure, as they moved from the main campus at DreamWorks and were sent to Shrek detention. Today we're talking about a uh, passage that is kind of dark. It's, it's a hard time for Christians, yet there is hope and glory that shines through this entire, pas entire passage. So let's jump in. Um, so we are in Luke 23. I'm going to start reading in verse 44. It'll also be on the screen. So two weeks ago, as a reminder, Pastor Tim finished preaching on verse 43, which says... Um, so he answers one of the thieves. He says, Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So we're picking up in verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. After Jesus uh, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. So you notice Jesus' final words, taken directly out of Psalm 31.5, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. That's Psalm 31.5. Now, usually when we talk about someone's death, we're talking about something that happens to someone. They got hit by a car, they fell off a cliff, whatever, whatever it is. But in verse 44, Jesus' death is purposeful. It says that Jesus let go of his spirit. 
Jesus is the one who allows himself to die. When we hear that Jesus died, we think, well, yes, he obviously died because of all the horrible things that had happened to him, between the floggings, the beatings, having to carry a cross up a hill, put into place, the nails in his hands, and left there for all that time. When someone was crucified, they could last a long time. There are accounts of men who had lasted four days on crosses. Jesus gives up his spirit after six hours. Now, everything that happens in this whole passage points to who Jesus is, who God is, and what he is paying for. So we're going to talk about all of those different reactions and responses to what happens in this passage. So first of all, we have darkness. For three hours, from noon until 3 p.m., darkness covers the entire land. Think of this from the perspective of someone who was there. So all of us, you know, if it's dark outside, what do you do? We walk over to the light switch, flick it on, and most of the time it should turn on unless you lost power because of the snow and ice that we've had, right? But most of the time, you turn it on, and it's not a big deal. In this, at this time, you'd have to light a candle, light a lantern, something like that. If you were working, do you think you could continue to work? No, you're done for the day. It's, it's dark outside. How are you supposed to build something or see anything when all you have is just candles, lamp oil, that kind of thing? Then suddenly, it is dark, inexplicably dark, over the whole land for three days hours. Terrifying. Darkness both signifies the fact that God had poured his wrath upon Jesus, and also this dark world would also someday feel the full wrath of God poured upon it. This is a warning. This is a warning to everyone who had put Jesus on the cross, right? Saying, hey, you have put the Son of God on a cross, and he has died. And this is what God's wrath looks like. At the same time, the temple veil was torn. Matthew identifies an earthquake as the cause of the temple veil being torn. Now, in the temple, there are two curtains, right? Two veils. So there's, you'd walk into the temple and you'd hit first uh, a big altar, giant altar. And then you'd continue on and you'd hit the first veil. And then inside of that, you have on one side, there's the um, table of showbread and a menorah and a small altar that was for burning incense, and then you'd hit another veil. Beyond that veil was the Holy of Holies. Inside of that was the place where the very presence of God rested. Now, there's debate on which veil was torn. Okay? I, I lean towards the one f- between the Holy of Holies and the, uh, and the incense altar and that kind of thing. Um, but there is debate, and there is uh, theological significance to both of them. So if the inner one is torn, it more points to the picture that there is nothing standing between us and the very holiest holies we can approach God directly, um, which I think makes a lot of sense. Some people do say that the outer veil is the one that was torn because it is more public. The entire whole court would see that suddenly you can look into the place where you're not supposed to see, including the court of the Gentiles, right? The Gentiles could look in and see. So there's some debate whether which one it is. Um, I think it was the one for the Holy of Holies, but that's just me. So, think about this. It's Holy Week, and suddenly you can't use the temple. All right? The veil is torn, 
It's the Passover. You're supposed to be doing offerings, incense, all kinds of things, and suddenly the veil is torn at the temple and you can no longer operate. All of this happens at the time when Jesus dies. Part of this seems like a warning to the high priests and the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders who had lobbied for Jesus to be on the cross. Um, but suddenly that veil is no longer there. This is significant for multiple reasons. One of the big ones is that the temple at Jesus' death is no longer the center of worshiping God, worshiping Yahweh. In 1 Corinthians, it tells us that we are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the ones that should be standing between God and the world, and we are the ones that should be um, the center of worshiping Jesus. Let's continue in verse 47. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance and watched these things. The witness's reaction to Christ's death points to who he was, is. We have the centurion. Now this centurion has been immortalized in multiple pop culture references. I mean, if you get into science fiction or fantasy at all, you find this guy popping up all over the place. He's inside of Arthurian legend. If you um, read about people like the, um, the uh, Fisher King and some other people, he, he's all over the place. But this centurion was the commander of the detachment who oversaw the execution of Jesus. Okay? This guy's hard as nails. That he's a centurion means that he's been in the Roman legions for a decent amount of time, at least 10 years. A term in the Roman legions, you need to be in at least 25 years, and then you could be discharged. So this guy's been in at least 10 years. Okay? And his job is pretty much to keep all of his troops in line. Right? This guy has seen combat. You don't get, you don't get to be a centurion unless you've actually been in the thick of it. And he's seen a number of executions. He commands this detachment, and he proclaims that Jesus is righteous. Now, it says that this centurion is not just any centurion. It says that he is just, and he is also viewed as righteous. Um, so he declares that Jesus is a righteous man. Other passages, if you go to Matthew, and I believe Mark says that he instead doesn't, he doesn't say that he is righteous. He rather says that it is the son. This man is truly the son of God. The women and the disciples also stand as witnesses to both the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which is interesting. Um, they help us see the cost that Jesus paid. Sometimes it's easy to say, well, Jesus is God and knew what was going to happen, and he's divine and we're not, and kind of whitewash the fact that Jesus died and bled on that cross. And there was a price. Think of the injustice that these women and people from Galilee saw. Today is Palm Sunday. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt, and everyone proclaimed that he was the king. 
A week later, he's on a cross. Not even a week later, he's on a cross. And finally, we have the crowd's reaction. It says that they beat their chests and walk away. Now, usually the death of a criminal, especially one on a cross, was a time for celebration. So lots of times we talk about the three men that were, the two men that were next to Jesus, right? We call them thieves. That translation's decent. A better one would be bandits, okay? Crucifixion isn't for stealing something from the local quick trip, all right? Crucifixion was reserved for those who carried out sedition against Rome, right? So that's mainly in Jerusalem, a group called the Zealots. So these guys are carrying out sedition against Rome. The crowds would have been happy to see their death. Rome is in charge. We are following Rome. We will celebrate this. But it says they beat their chests and went home. This is a sign that they felt remorse, that they saw the, the reality that the person that they had killed was not a zealot. The person they had killed was not carrying out any kind of sedition against Rome. And they went home in shame for what they had done. This all leads to Jesus' burial. Verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he, took it, then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The woman who had come to Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So first of all, we've got Joseph of Arimathea. He's viewed as a righteous man. It says that he was a member of the council. This council is the Sanhedrin. Right? This is the ruling religious council in Israel. Um, and he, it said he was not a part of the actions that put Jesus on this cross. It says that he was not happy with it. Um, and it said that he was waiting for the kingdom of heaven. This puts him in a short list of people that the Bible says was waiting for, were waiting for the kingdom of heaven. Um, we think of Simeon and Anna and some of those that saw Jesus at his birth and a dedication, Joseph of Arimathea is described in the exact same way, that he was both righteous and waiting for Jesus, um, well, for the Messiah. So Joseph goes to Pilate, and he asks for, Pilate, for the body of Jesus. This was a dangerous thing, right? Now let's say I got in trouble for something, all right? Let's say the police were looking for me, all right? The first thing that the police are going to do is try and find me, and they're going to go to known associates, right? They're going to say, all right, who is he hanging out with? 
With you, Kevin? Yeah, hanging out with you. So Joseph goes to Pilate and he says, hey, can I have the body of Jesus Christ? Automatically, Pilate's saying, all right, you want the body of someone who was put on a cross. Well, why was he put on the cross? Well, anyone who's put on a cross is there because he was carrying out sedition against the Roman Empire. So automatically, Joseph now is on a short list for all the Romans to look at and say, hey, that's the guy. He's the one who was who helping out the, the bandits, these seditious people. So it takes a lot of courage to go to him. And on top of that, Pilate says that he can take the body. Usually when someone's crucified, the body is left either on the cross for the animals to eat, or he's thrown into a mass grave, right? Both things not super great. But Pilate, understanding that this man was righteous, he wasn't someone who was carrying out sedition for Rome, gives the body to Joseph, and Joseph takes the body and buries it. Now, it says that he was taken on with honor, and he is buried as a king. Think about this. He's wrapped in cloth. He's put spices on his body. The the, uh, Jews in general didn't believe in mummification and that kind of thing that lots of Middle Easterns did, but instead they would wrap the body with spices to stave off the smell of decomposition. Um, So he's buried in a tomb. It says says that it's a, a new grave, right? It's literally Joseph's grave. It's cut into the rock, right? This is a big deal. Graves that were cut into the rock um, were for wealthy people. So Joseph put Jesus into his own grave. No one else had been put into it. Um, and this, lots of this is to carry, like it goes with a prophecy. So in Isaiah 53.9, it says this, he was, signed, he was assigned a grave with the wicked um, and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And it says at the end of this passage that they rested on the Sabbath to obey the commandment, and they got ready the day of preparation. They got ready for the Sabbath or uh, for Passover. So, in review, let's look through this passage and talk through kind of what we we, we saw. So, we're going to start at the at the end and move back. So, we've seen him buried in a rich man's grave. He's buried as a king. His body was taken from the Romans. The crowd who called for his blood went away in despair and realized that he was a righteous man. They were not celebrating the death of a criminal, but rather mourning the death of a king. The centurion who executed him literally said that this man was righteous, which that a Roman would say anything good about a Jewish person who was on a cross for sedition. I mean, there's, it's crazy. The temple, the veil was torn just before Passover. Anything that stood between us and God was torn down. And finally, the world was put on notice of God's wrath and it was pour, as it was poured out onto the Son of God. Well, this was all for his purpose. I'm going to read a section of Isaiah 53. And this starts in verse 10. This is just after the passage um, that I had just read, 53.9. So this is 10, 11, 12, 
um, and it will be on the screen. So Eli, whenever you want to put that up, go for it. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins, sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I want you to think about that passage. So that was written years and years before Jesus was ever born. Before Mary was born, before Joseph, before Christmas, all of it. That was written. Jesus' death and burial is purposeful. Jesus came for the purpose of dying for our sins. And it all draws us to this question, who is Jesus? In, in this passage, his death and burial identify him as God, as the Savior for our sins, as the righteous one who is sent to die for us, he is the one who makes it possible for us to approach the throne of God. And finally, he is buried as the king with all the honors that befit his station. Now, some of us will question the existence of Jesus as a historical figure. However, I'm sorry to tell you that's not really possible. The historical community identifies Jesus as a historical figure. The first century Roman historian Tacitus identifies Jesus mainly because he's writing about Nero, and Nero's burning all these Christians, and he says, well, these Christians followed a guy named Christ who was crucified by Pilate. The Jewish, um, the Jewish historian Josephus also identifies Jesus, says that Jesus was crucified under Pilate, um, and that his, his uh, followers spread out from there. So Jesus is accepted as a historical person in history. So the question is, who is he? It's easy to say that Jesus is just a teacher, or just a man. But C.S. Lewis says this about that answer. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with a patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not let that open to us. He did not intend to. I mean, think about this. All the people that said that Jesus should be put on that cross and died, every single one that witnessed it came away saying, no, 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 we did it wrong. This wasn't right. And the centurion who did it, he's like, man, this guy shouldn't have been up there. When I was a kid... My parents would tell me to do something, right? They would tell me, to, oh, you need to go rake the leaves, or I ask you to clean up your clothes, or clean up your room, or whatever it was. And my answer many times would be, or I'll do that later, or I know, or something like that. With no real expectation of actually doing that chore, right? It was just kind of like, oh, yeah, I'll just say that and walk away. How often do we say yes, that Jesus is who he says he is, without actually taking the time to think through exactly what that means. It's easy to, to sit there and think about, well, yeah, 
Jesus is God and walk away from that without thinking of the implications of who he is. So many of you have heard this before, that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is God. But whether it is the first or the 500th time that you have heard the truth, that Jesus is who he says he is, um, and that he has done what he has said he did for us, it's time for us to let that seep in and change who we are. Charles Stanley said this, The blood that poured from Christ's wounds bought your salvation. If you want to truly value what he did, think of him hanging on a cross just for you. With that thought in your mind, consider how you should live. He gave himself freely for you. Are you giving yourself fully to him? That's what I want you to think about this week. As it's Easter, it's easy to look at Easter and say, oh, it's just a Sunday. We, you know, Maybe you get Monday off. I don't know. Some people do, some people don't. But um, it's easy to look at this week and say it's just a normal week. It's a normal weekend. Nothing big is happening. But like Stanley says, Jesus gave himself up freely for you. Are you going to give yourself fully to him? If you have never given yourself fully to Jesus, if you have never answered that question, who is Jesus, and let that change you, I would love to have that conversation with you. If this is the 500th time you've heard this, let this just be a reminder to you. We all need to hear the gospel on a regular basis, and we all need to preach that to ourselves every day. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for who you are, that you are our king, that you are our savior, that you are our God, that you came 2,000 years ago as a human to die on a cross for us, Lord. I thank you that this week we get to celebrate not only your death, but your resurrection, Lord. That there's hope that shines through all the darkness. I ask that you would help us to allow this to seep into our lives and change who we are. Help us understand that you paid the ultimate price for us. We thank you for who you are and our, just the fact that we get to gather as a church in your name. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go from this place, go knowing that you are, you've been paid for, you've been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are dismissed. from him.
Redeemer, Amen.